this morning. Wonderful. What a day. Any day we worship God is a wonderful day, and today is no different. Thank you for being with us this morning. Uh, I am not Lance Quinn. Uh, those of you who are regular tenders and part of Bethany Church know that that. Uh, if you are a visitor, we welcome you. Glad you could be with us this morning. Lance Quinn is our pastor. He is uh, on vacation, a much-deserved vacation after uh, more than three years of labor and shepherding and message preparation and doctoral dissertation writing and pastoring people and preaching, and he's taking some time off. So we are grateful that uh, that God has blessed us with a man who is true to the word and certainly a shepherd of men's hearts. Uh, but we're glad he's gone because we want him to uh, be rejuvenated. Uh, he and Beth are, uh, are uh, uh, taking some time off. And they will be back, I believe, on the 23rd. So pray for them as they are, uh, as they are uh, uh, rejuvenating themselves um, here in town or wherever they may be. It's a little bit of a mystery, but we'll just pray for them as we move forward. If you'll turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be in a very familiar place in the Bible. Uh, The New Testament has a lot of those, of course, favorite verses and places that you've gone before and certainly heard messages before. Uh, Perhaps this is one of the most well-known areas, and maybe, though, not the most well dug into. Uh, We are going to be moving through what is commonly known, known as the Lord's Prayer. We'll call it the Disciples' Prayer because really it's, it's your prayer and my prayer. It's Jesus teaching us. Here at Bethany, we, prayer is a dominant issue. And if the Word of God preached and the Word of God taken in is the heartbeat of the Christian's life, then prayer is akin to your lungs. You cannot do without prayer. Prayer is not a, uh, a sideline to anything that we do as Christians. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it's the apex of the Christian's life. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was uh, a, a powerful preacher in the UK up until his death in the early 1970s. He wrote the defining work, at least the launching work, that other men have written off of, of the Sermon on the Mount. And so he is very familiar with with uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer, or the Disciples' Prayer, rather. And that's what he said. It's the apex of the Christian life. This is not an addition to. We're approaching this morning Matthew chapter 6, and it is sort of the crown jewel that sits in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. At this point, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he is contrasting what is true faith, or genuine faith, and what is false faith seen in behavior, seen in attitudes, externals, which were so rampant in the day, and internals, which we, he was preaching. Why don't we go there to Matthew chapter 6, and I want to read for you, starting in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 15, because I want to get the context. Between verse 1 and verse um, 8, uh, or actually in verse, uh, verse 6, first six verses really are the lead-in. To the, to the area of instruction that Jesus will give us on how to pray. Let me read it, and we'll open up with some comments in a, mo- in a moment. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, don't let your hand, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who, is seasoned, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. 
Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. We'll move down to verse 14. That's a subscript there. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. We approach a, a, a piece of Scripture and we join the disciples as they sit on a hill in Israel, listening for the first time what is often called the Manifesto of the King, the Sermon on the Mount. What we'll be talking about this morning and this evening, by the way, is Jesus teaching us how to pray. Now, fundamentally, we understand that we need to, we need to do that. Prayer is an immense, an immense topic, as you know. But there are first steps, and sometimes there are clarifying steps. For the disciples, this is really a first step for them. We're going to join them. Can you imagine later on seeing Jesus praying in private? Your disciple praying in private, praying in public with them, fellowshipping with his father, and you recall sitting that day with him on the hill, listening to him tell you, instruct you, draw you, into how to pray. Oh, the mandate is there to pray. But Jesus gives us a roadmap. He gives us some lessons on what it means to pray. Now, the danger here is that this is so familiar to us that it becomes one of those things that we sort of dismiss a little bit. We, we have a little percentage of dismissal factor that we need to sort of rein in. And when we rein that in, we take a fresh look at what the disciples' prayer is. There is an illumination that happens with regard to where we take what we understand about prayer and implement it. And that's what Jesus was doing at these minutes. How would you like to be sitting there and you have the I am looking at you? Now, there were other people there. The Pharisees were there. Other disciples were there. But those who he had called to himself, those disciples which we're familiar with, were nearest to him. And the eyes of the I am of the Old Testament is, they're looking at you. And he's saying, here's how I want you to pray. And we're no different. They're disciples, and so are we. We have a great text this morning in Matthew chapter 6. Now, this is not a comprehensive treatment of of prayer. So we need to understand that and hold that as a sort of a ground rule as we move into chapter 6. <clears throat> My goal really here is to, is to bring us to a place of, of uh, enhanced prayer. And as you know, here at Bethany, we, we do pray. We pray in services. We pray in the evening and we pray in the morning at, in, in our services. We have we have uh, had up until recently a, a Wednesday night prayer time praying through the Psalms. We pray before women's groups and we pray before men's groups. We pray as individuals. We're actively involved in this thing we call prayer. That is, and, and so by, by doing that, by seeing that, you understand how integral this is. And you say, of course it is. If it's so integral, then we're going to let Jesus talk to us this morning through the pen of Matthew by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to enhance that prayer life. And as I thought about this over the last several weeks, one of the things that keep, keep, keep came, kept coming back to me was the vastness of prayer. And it's really just not the mechanics of prayer. It really is an ocean of grace that we tap into. And I thought, how in the world, even for my own life, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, what, what can I do? How can I approach this with this new, freshened look of, at, at prayer? What it means and the vastness of it. And I was comforted by the fact that you simply take out of the ocean one sip at a time and then another sip. So Jesus takes us to the disciples' prayer this morning and that's our first, 
our first sip as we move forward. Let me read you some quotes. Oh, by the way, uh, I found this very interesting. You know, this activity of prayer that we, we move into didn't start with you and I. Prayer didn't start with you and I. Prayer didn't start with us. Prayer started when God reached into your heart by his grace and drew you to himself if you are indeed a believer in Christ. At that point, you were drawn into the holy of holies, if you will, into the courtroom of heaven, into a personal relationship with the living God, with the I am, with Yahweh. So prayer didn't really start with us. He was the one who initiated your salvation. He was the the one that initiated this opportunity we have to fellowship with him in prayer. You know, when we pray, it really is a response to that initiation that God took the very day we were saved. What a blessing it is. So we we look at prayer as a grace, not something that's attached to anything. It, it's a part and parcel to who we are as, as believers. Let me read you some things. Charles Spurgeon, you might know, know, know of him, 1800s in Britain, prince of preachers, some people call him. To pray is to enter the treasure house of God and to gather riches out of an exhaustible storehouse. Kind of like that idea of, uh, of the ocean, taking one sip at a time. It's an exhaustible storehouse. So we're in good company. If prayer intimidates you to a degree, it intimidates me seeing the vastness of it. Spurgeon was right there with us. Martin Lloyd-Jones again. Uh, Prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. McShane, a Scottish saint, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful preacher. If If you pursue someone who the quotes, he's a quote machine because his, he said such, such good things. Robert Murray McShane, a man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. To bring it to the 21st century, John Piper, you know him? Perhaps without extended concentrated prayer, the ministry of the word withers. And when the ministry of the word declines, faith and holiness decline. Activity may continue, but life and power and fruitfulness fade away. Therefore, whatever opposes prayer opposes the whole work of ministry. Serious. Prayer's great purpose is that God would be our joy. If you do anything this morning moving into this, this morning, and I'll just take time to come tonight. We're going to finish this tonight. It will not be completed this morning. We have some time to fellowship and communion. Come tonight. But you see where the, the last thing he said, prayer's great purpose, that God would be our joy. Hold on to that phrase for a moment until we're done this morning. Hold on to that as we move forward. Prayer, prayer is the channel of grace. And you've heard Pastor Lance say this. Um, there are essentially three modes of grace in the church, prayer, the word, and the body. So prayer is a channel of God's grace, and we know that by the word, but from the word and of the word. But prayer is occupying, again, another channel of grace. And what does that mean? What does a channel of grace mean? When he says it, when I say it, when you say it to each other, what does that mean? A channel of grace is this. It is that channel from which God is able to influence you and the body to greater sanctification. That's what it is. It is a chute, a ladder. It is a, a, an avenue. It's, it's a channel of grace that changes us. Those are, the th- those are the, some of the reasons why prayer is so absolutely, absolutely critical in the life of the believer. This is not something we tack on. There are some needs, though, and we're not any different than, we're not any different than the, the disciples. In Luke 11, <clears throat> the disciples just simply said, Lord, teach us to pray. And that should stop us for a moment, because in that day, as, as we read earlier, what did, the, uh, what did the religious leaders, how were the religious leaders pictured in verses 5, 6, and 7? When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by men. So they were familiar with prayer. 
that's not the problem. The pro- they were familiar with the prayer in the wrong way. They were, familiar, they were familiar with a perverse praying. And so in, 11, so in Luke 11, they simply said to, to Jesus, to teach us to pray. If you're saying that this is hypocritical, and you're using the, 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 the picture of the, the Pharisees, and nobody you know, sort of crossed the hip the, across the Pharisees. Remember those stories where Jesus did begin to apply pressure to the Pharisees, and they began to apply pressure back. For the, for the, for the people of the day, they were burdened by the law, this overextending law. Not the law that would bring you to faith, but the law from a legalistic standpoint. So prayer was nothing more than a legalistic execution. And that's what they did. They stood there, and that's what their model was. Well, Jesus was ministering to them and teaching them to pray, and then Luke 11, he says, they say, teach us to pray. What an attitude. Not them. We're looking at you, the great I am. Teach us to pray. We have to be taught. That's a need that we have. Another need that we have is to really avoid really what is really inherent idolatry. Um, prayer takes us into the presence of God, period. Now, there are reasons why God may not, if you're a believer, if, if, there may be reasons why God may not answer our prayers, and our prayers are amiss. But there's, there, there is, a, there is a, an inherent idolatry that we have to continually put away. The world is bound in sin. They're bound in their idolatries. We are not bound in our idolatries. We've been freed from, we've been freed from sin. But we can, in our flesh, respond to, wrongly, some of those idolatrous sort of inclinations. We want to make sure that we are not doing that. We are not setting things in front of God in our own personal idolatry, confessing that as we move forward. We need his spirit. Another thing that we need is his spirit to move us toward prayer and in our weakness. Of course, you're, you're familiar with Romans 8.26, that the, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We're also, we're also in need of discipline. Not the discipline from Hebrews quite yet. Personal discipline. Um, Paul said this to Timothy, young pastor in 1 Timothy 4, uh, verse 7, discipline yourselves, discipline yourself as a pastor. Discipline yourself, Timothy. As a man who is preaching the word, discipline yourself. For the purpose of godliness. Oh, there's the connection to transformation that Romans 8.29 talks about. Our our transformation to the character and the image of, of Christ. Conformity to him. Godliness, the word, and prayer. Channels of grace. It all kind of comes together. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. To maintain a proper orientation to prayer, though, uh, Paul goes on in different other places in the New Testament. I'm, gi- I'm sort of giving these to you as a run-up as we move step-by-step step toward Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6. In terms of the New Testament, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, talks about the, uh, uh, us being devoted in prayer. And in all reality, being devoted in prayer is a mark of a true Christian. Uh, praying is, is, as one writer said, the mark of a true Christian. And you know Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 as, um, as a familiar verse as well. Again, these are familiar verses that we, we're going to. And I, just, I love familiar verses because when I go back to them, it's sort of a discipline of my own. Don't get lazy and lethargic, Jim, because those are some things that we sometimes do. Uh, sort of um, dismiss. Therefore, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, is good and acceptable uh, and, and, and perfect. Those are marks of a, of a true Christian continue steadfastly in prayer in, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. And by the way, when Paul says continue steadfastly in prayer, this is one of those 
This is one of those um, pray without ceasing sort of verses from 1 Thessalonians 4. When he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, that is a command, and that is present tense. Now, we're not always sort of English majors, but when you hit a command and it's in present tense, what does that mean? It's a command. It's, it's a command. Yes, we get that. What does this present tense mean? Present tense mean continuation, continual, all the time. Consistently praying. Consistently praying. And of course, we know, pray without ceasing from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Look, all of those things that Paul's sort of, sort of scattering through his letters in the New Testament... The linchpin to all of those is this. You have the ear of the Almighty. That's a privilege that you and I have. That is not a privilege that the world has. It's not a privilege that the the unredeemed have. We have the ear of the Almighty. And you know, if we don't sort of approach prayer with the Almighty in, in, in mind as a preeminent thought, which Jesus does preach, and we'll see that in a moment. And we rush to the Lord. We rush into the gates of heaven, if you will, into the presence of the Almighty, into the presence of the I Am, and we are, we are bent to unload our burdens, I understand, because I'm just like you, and we're all just like each other. We want to let the Lord know what we need. But when we enter the presence of the living God, it was like Isaiah. Remember Isaiah 6? Christ, God high and lifted up. What was was going on in the heart of Isaiah? What did he do? He saw that and what did he do? Do you remember what he did? He dropped to his knees. He was in the presence of God. Jehovah God. That is prayer. And so that's one of the key lead-ins to Matthew chapter 6 as, we move, as we're moving forward to what Jesus was teaching with regard to, uh, to prayer for you and I. It's this how-to. Now, l- let me just give you a summary of where we are in, the, in sort of the historical narrative. Jesus has just come on the scene. And he is just beginning his ministry. He begins to teach the, the, uh, the, the disciples and others, other, quote, disciples, followers, people that were curious. And he also te- he's also teaching, if they're listening, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, the religious leadership of the day. And it's sort of this layered effect on this hill. And what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew, he's explaining to them what... Is what is evident in the kingdom of God? What is evident in the citizen of the kingdom of God? These behaviors. He's actually confronting the current system of religiosity, which was very, very external. And as I said earlier, the, the law became a, a burden to the point where, for example, I remember one illustration I heard years ago that, that uh, um, if, if there was someone uh, who was a seamstress or a tailor, and uh, they were working, and the Sabbath began. And, you know, some of you ladies who are, are, are involved in sewing and, and other kinds of, of those kinds of arts, uh, you, you sew, you sew, you crochet, not so much crochet, but you sew, and you, you get to the end of the, the line there, and you snip the thread, or maybe there's a little bit of thread there, and you need to do something with your hands. What do you do? What do you often do? Maybe not so much anymore, but what did maybe they did with the needle? They would take it and they would just stick it in their clothes. Now we have the little puffy thing, you know, you stick it in there and you do your deal, right? Um, but oftentimes they would take that needle and they would, they would, they would uh, stick it in their clothes and they would go out doing their work. The problem with that is, is that it got so, so legalistic at that time that that person would violate the Sabbath because they were carrying a load. They were actually working on the Sabbath. And you say, that's ridiculous, and I would agree with you. But that's what the environment was. Jesus is on the scene, 
And he begins his ministry by redefining what the kingdom is, not what they're doing. I'll tell you what it is. And he moves through the Sermon on the Mount. And the sermon is, is, is often, often termed the greatest sermon that Jesus preached. It's this crown jewel. Well, he, as he does this, he also defines for the, for, the, for the disciple, for the believer, what we're to do as truly religious people. True religion, true piety, true holiness. And he begins to do that in Matthew chapter, in Matthew chapter 6. So the more immediate context, what's he doing here? He is, he is contrasting holiness and lack thereof. And so he does that in two sections. One section is about uh, uh, men giving alms, giving, giving uh, uh, offerings, uh, and they're doing it for what? For the recognition of men. And he says, you do it for the recognition of men, certainly, and that's what your reward will be, the recognition of men. Essentially, by silence, he's saying your father, your heavenly father is not going to reward that. That's not something that pleases him. And he moves from this section down to prayer, which he essentially does the same thing. Oh, by the way, these, these dominant behaviors uh, in, the, in that time, the New Testament era. But that's what the Pharisees were doing. So he, he, you could see this flow through the first part of Matthew chapter 6, and it's just, it's, it's, it's inching its way, inch by inch, down to a very specific portion of Matthew chapter 6 where he addresses prayer and what God would have us do. But before he gets there, he also confronts the Pharisees, if you will, and instructs the Pharisees by way of negativity, by a, by a negative. This is what you don't do. This is what you're not to do. And he moves into that in verses 5 through 8. He became more confrontational, more confrontational here, more specific. You can see the grinding down to this very clear instruction. Now, I can't imagine what the Pharisees were doing. I have, you know, obviously we, we don't know. You can, only, you can only sort of surmise and let your imagination take off a little bit. And they were standing there tapping their feet, sort of as he continued through the Sermon on the Mount. You've already gone through one chapter, chapter 5, all of that teaching in chapter 5. And by this time, Perhaps their, their interest and the facial expressions of an interested person are moving toward, uh, I, I, I'm not only less interested now, but I think that I don't like what I'm hearing. And the facial expressions change from sort of this uh, curiosity to some stern, sternness in the, in the face of the Pharisees. Well, that's what Jesus was doing. This is what the Father is all about. This is the kingdom. What you're doing is not the kingdom. And he says to the, to the, to the, uh, by, by, by negativity, by the negative example, this is what you don't do when you pray. Go into your, but he said, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. I don't know whether he looked at them. For they love to stand in the, and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that what? They might be seen by men. It's very man-centered praying. These prayers, their praying, their active praying had a motive, and the motive was to be, be recognized by men and gain an audience. And that might be, I mean, we, we do that perhaps, in part. Reputation, you know, we might do that. We might lapse into that. Again, we, have, we are redeemed people, and sometimes, but we do have a sinful flesh, and sometimes those things do cross our minds. We put those away. But this was the active practice. This was the consistent practice of the Pharisaical Sanhedrin, Pharisees, Sadducees, and the scribes. This is what they did. And this is what was understood. But Jesus said, but you, but you, when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray. The, the, the assumption is that people who followed Christ pray. Not if, when, but when you pray Go into your inner room and close your door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father sees what is done in secret and will reward you. Now, that's talking about private prayer. You say, wait, wait a minute. We do corporate prayer, right? We do public prayer. Absolutely we do. Jesus is pinpointing here just 
private prayer more than anything to juxtapose it to this pump and circumstance, this flow of prayer that the Pharisees were, were uh, demonstrating. That's what he's doing. Now, there are benefits to private prayer. We know those benefits. You know, one of the benefits to prayer, you can think of some others, I'm sure, as you're sitting there, we're conversing about Matthew chapter 6 here. And you think along with me, some of those benefits are just, you're able to groan. You're able to cry, perhaps, in private. You're able to sing. You're able to change position and lay on the ground with your head down. You can stand up with your hands in the air. There's so many advantages of the quiet place of prayer. Again, in the presence of I am. So he's, he's juxtaposing this private prayer with the Pharisees' public ostentation, ostentatious activity of prayer. So here, that's what he's doing. And, and we know that, that all through the book of Acts, talking about corporate prayer now, Paul, Paul tells us to pray. He demonstrated prayer. and Prayer in a corporate setting was part and parcel to the early church. Chapter 4, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 20. If you're, making, if you're taking notes, 4, 13, 14, and 20, public prayer was replete in the book of Acts, in the early church. It was part of the heartbeat of the church. So this is not juxtaposing and negating public prayer, but he is nailing the mandate to the wall, if you will, that what you're seeing there, disciples, is not what we're going to be talking about here. In that case, go into private, approach your father in private, and he sees, he knows you, he sees you. And when you're praying, he says, do not use, in verse 7, again, we're still run up. You can see where we're going here. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. That's an interesting, interesting uh, point there. As the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Hmm. Don't use loose, meaningless repetition. Gentiles, many words. What was going on there? The Gentiles were the... Were the were who? Do you remember? Who were the Gentiles in that time? There were Jews, nation of Israel, and the Gentiles at the time were largely Romans and Greeks. This Hellenistic Greek influence was everywhere. It was very, you know, the Greeks were mindy, our heady people. You know, I got to know. You know, it's, it's, it, that's, that was the that was the uh, their passion to know stuff. That was the, you know, of course that's not. It's funny how, how, how that was their priority in terms of culture, and yet he sort of takes them to the woodshed because here he's saying to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, don't use meaningless repetition uh, and, and, and um, you know, don't be like them. Meaningless repetition, they suppose they will be heard for the many words. This meaningless repetition. The interesting thing about that word is, is it is... Um, Meaning about, it's, it's basically saying uh, uh, the way that they pray is an incoherent way. It's an incoherent prayer. Essentially what they're doing is they're not thinking about what they're doing. There is no involvement with the Father. Obviously they're divorced from the Father. They're enemies at this point if they're not redeemed. They're not faithful people. But it really is this idea of coherent prayer. Uh, incoherent prayer, rather. Uh, and he uses the word that has to do with, um, uh, it's an onomatopoeic word. You, you know what that means? It's a, a, it's, a, uh, a, 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 it's a word that sounds like something else. Batalageo. Um, blah, 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 blah. Get it? Batalageo is the word. We're not Greek students, but that, it's interesting that it translates over into sort of an, an English equivalent. Batalageo is this, this, this onomatopoeic. It means a and there's nothing coherent about it. And Jesus is saying that's also predominant. Not, not necessarily with the Jews, but he's saying the Gentiles do this. It's a pagan ritual. No mind, no heart. It's simply this activity. And you know, uh, the prophets of Baal back in 1 Kings 18, 
And the, you remember that story on Mount Carmel? Want to go there? Let's go there. It's fun. First Kings 18. First Kings 18, it talks about uh, these prophets of Baal. And Elijah is, is, uh, is goading them on. Remember that? Ah, so uh, you remember the story? We don't have to necessarily read it. You can read it there a little. Well, let's read a little bit. Um, so Elijah said in verse 25, said to the prophets of Baal, choose, choose an ox for yourselves and prepare it for first for you are many, and call on the name of your God, because they're, they're, they, they put fire under it. Then they took the ox and was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal uh, from morning until noon. That was blah, 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 blah. And Baal answered us, but there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they made, and it came at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a louder voice, for he is God. Either he is occupied... He's doing something else, guys. He's not paying attention to you. Or he's gone aside. He's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep, and he needs to be awakened. Now, that's sarcasm. He's not coaching them. He is sarcastically demonstrating to them that you are praying to a God that doesn't exist. Well, Satan. But you're praying to a God that doesn't exist. And so they continue. And you know the end of the story. God wipes that whole place out. I am God. I am the I am. What they were doing was just this. It was that, it was that uh, shameful activity. D.A. Carson says, shameful to think, and this is what they were doing, trying to cajole their God, trying to pull their God in, trying to manipulate their God. And Elijah's having none of it. He's, he's sarcastic. D.A. Carson is a, is a commentator, great commentator. Shameful to think, he said, we can wrest favors from God by the sheer volume of prayer mechanically offered. Now, they're, they're, you can put that right into the Pharisees. You can put that right into the prophets of Baal, and you can put that quote right into, right on my desk on a three-by-five card. That is what we don't want to do. We don't want to be shameful that we can rest favors from God. You're going to the great I am. How in the world do we do that? The prophets of Baal, that's what, they were, that's what they were doing. It's foolish. Why is that foolish? Why is all that foolish? And, and Jesus answers why this, all this prophets of Baal, why all of the Pharisees, why, what they're doing is foolish. Why is it that they're, 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 they're onomatopoeic? They're just going on, blah, 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 blah. They're, 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 they're cajoling, they're manipulating. Why is all that foolish? Verse 8 in, uh, in Matthew ch- ch- chapter 6. Go back there. Verse 8 says, um, don't be like them. Mark this. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's why we don't have to do that. Because, number one, you've got a father, truthfully. And two, he's listening and he knows what you need. Now, that begs the question a little bit on... on uh, somebody says, wait a minute. Wait, if, if, if God knows what I need, and I, why do I need to? And we'll get to it in the second half of the, uh, of the disciples' prayer when he says, uh, give, us our, give, us our bread, our, give us this day our daily bread. Okay, so that's a, that is a petition. And he does encourage us, as you know, to go to him with our petitions. That's an invitation. But... What, what does that mean? Well, the construction, the construction is what sort of gives it away. But I'll tell you, let me give you some, some touch points with regard to this question. If, if my God knows what I need before I ask him, and he does ask me to ask him, command me to ask him, I ask him what he already knows. So that's, that, you know, that's interesting. So what's the issue here? The issue is this. It begs the question, if God knows, why do I need to pray? First, it's communion, first and foremost. Touch point number one, it's, it's, it's communion. This is your father. So the, so the, the apex of, of prayer is, it is your father. The second thing is, there's a sanctifying effect 
being in the presence of God. And we alluded to Isaiah 6 a little while ago. Isaiah 6, being in the presence of God. Read that. That is an intimidating piece of Scripture. But that's where we are. There's a sanctifying effect. And of course, he knelt down and was, what am I going to do, Lord? I, I have, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Immediate conviction. That's what being in the presence of God does. It is a sanctifying audience. It's a sanctifying effect from, a, from, an, from an audience that is divine. What's something else? We acknowledge his omniscience. He knows what I need. And by the way, aren't there times when we desperately need God to understand my heart, when I can't quite verbalize, even in the quietness of my own heart, what I'm really feeling? When I don't know what to say to the great I am, to your Father? I am so happy that God is an omniscient God. Now that can be intimidating because he knows our sin. But really from a father's standpoint, a, a gracious dear father, being omniscient is something we hold on to and love because he knows our hearts better than we do. Something else that begs the question, if God knows what I need before I pray, which is really flows into this, we are faulty in our prayer requests. We would pray for things that are not pleasing to him and he draws us toward things that are pleasing to him, that are right and good. One writer said, God forgives and mends our prayers as surely as he forgives and mends our other failings. Because we're sinful people, we still have, as I said, residing sin in our flesh. Even our prayers can be misguided and misdirected and fall short. And God knows that. He knows that you and I are but what? Dust. He knows our frame. He knows you. And so it's so good that he's omniscient. It's so good that he knows what, he, what I need before I ask. And by the way, God is not capricious. This is not like the, uh, you know that commercial, that State Farm commercial like it is, or it's an insurance com- company commercial. It's the, got the fire, it's got the little, the little old man there, and he's kind of small, and he's got the, they're going after dollars to save on insurance. He's on the end of a fishing pole. And he says, okay, there you go. You're chasing dollars to save money on, on insurance. And that's, that they're saying this is not who we are. There it is. There it is. And, and they're saying the insurance companies, you know, their competitors are, are, are dangling these, these things in front of you, but you don't really save, and there's the dangling in front of you. Oop, 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 and, he, and that's not God. God is not capricious. God is not uh, dangling favors, yanking them away just as we reach for them. That was, though, the picture, if you will, of the Gentile gods. That was the, that was the sense of the Gentile gods. They're capricious. They're, 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 they, we don't mean anything to them. Here it is, and they yank it away. Here it is, and yank it away. No wonder they felt like they needed to cajole and manipulate their god. Because that was their viewpoint of their their idolatrous viewpoint was that's my God and he doesn't uh, wait we have no relationship he's not my father father gives good things father gives good things takes care of his of his children he provides for them he protects them well not their gods so you see the sort of the the frustration. There are ways that, that uh, though, that as we move into this, that we might not, as we talk about prayer, we might not um, have our prayers answered, even as believers, because James chapter 4, verse 3 says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss, that you might, what? Spend it on your own some versions say lusts, some versions say pleasures, so misdirected prayers. Something else, in Psalm 66, David says, if I, regor- if, if, I, if I regard, if I hold, if unconfessed sin in my heart, verse 18, the Lord will not, have you ever read that verse? The, what will he not do? The Lord will not hear me. Oh, he hears. We know he hears. But hearing essentially is hearing and acting, hearing and welcoming, hearing and responding. God is omniscient. He hears. That's not what the writer of, of that psalm is getting at. 
What else? How else can our, <clears throat> how else can our, our, our prayers not be answered? James, that brother of Jesus, nails it. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So pride is often something that we bring to the prayer, bring to the altar of the, all I, the I am. Uh, unconfessed sin, David uh, outlines for us in Psalm 66, and certainly in James chapter, chapter 4, uh, we ask amiss because we have lusts and pleasures. And the other thing is that we don't ask in faith. And again, James n- nails it again. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For, not, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Let me introduce for you, and then we'll move on to our time in communion this morning. Let me introduce for you, as I've set, set the stage, and that's all very important. We could have, we could have dived right into, right into the prayer, right into pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. But you understand where Jesus is coming from. You understand what the, what the, what the disciples, what their mindset was, what they were pressured by, what the religious situation was. Now, when Jesus says, and he looks to them and he says, pray then in this way. Now it makes sense. Huge misdirection away from what what we've talked about, what what we've talked about so far. So let me me set the stage for you for this evening. Come back. Come back. This is something that is just dynamic and monumental in the life of the believer. The master teacher gives us a model for prayer. This is a, a, a pattern of prayer. Now, you, you, you've probably been to places where the, the, the disciples' prayer has been recited. It's not a sin, per se, but that's not the objective that Jesus is laying out. He didn't say, uh, he didn't say uh, pray like this. That's what he didn't say. And there's a difference between pray like this and pray in this way. That, there's a difference there. And what he's saying is pray in, in, in this way. It's not a recitation. But he gives, us, he gives us three principles, three lessons from the mouth of the living God. Three lessons. One is the preface of prayer. Pray then in this way, the preface of prayer. Our Father who is in heaven Holy or sanctified or hallowed be your name. He also gives us petitions for God's concerns, which come first. Interestingly enough, you see the, you see the line up there? We worship, we bring God's concerns first, and those concerns are, number one, hallowed be thy name. Sanctify your name, God, in our lives, in our church, in our world. Separate it. Empower it. Your kingdom come. We want you to be here. We want your influence to be pervasive while you're not here through the life of the believer, through the life of the church, and certainly for you to come back. We want your will to be done. We're willing to submit. We want your perfect will because it's coming from a holy and perfect God, our Father, on earth as it is in heaven. Near, it's intimate, and we want your, your, your will to be done throughout all of your creation. In the heavens, everywhere. So we, he, he talks to them, he instructs them, he teaches them to worship. He teaches them then to bring God's concerns. And then he says, because you've been in the presence of your, of your God, you know your Father, you know his character, you've, you, you've, you've put him in a preeminent place Now, with those confidences that you have had, with the confidence that you've born out of, maybe it's a sanctifying effect of prayer. Now you go to your requests, and he says, bring your requests. But those requests now are coded in in your time with the living God. My goodness, how, how much better can it be? And then he says, bring your requests the third lesson, the preface of the true prayer, the petitions for God's concerns, and petitions for our, our own concerns. 
So this evening, we're going to be talking about those three sections. And again, I'd, I'd invite you to, to come back with us, and we will finish this taking a sip out of this vast ocean in the disciples' prayer. Why don't we pray together, and we'll move into our fellowship with the Lord and our fellowship with each other through communion. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are this morning debtors to your grace that that we can come by grace through faith to your throne room. That when you came to this world, Lord Jesus, you taught these disciples and therefore you teach us what it means to pray and how to pray, how to come to you. You are inviting us. You are drawing us to you in prayer. This is fellowship. And so, Father, we're so grateful that your Son would instruct us exactly the way that you want us to come to you in prayer. This is how to do it. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. We look forward to this evening when we finish up this disciples' prayer, when we understand our petitions on your behalf and then your gracious kindness to allow us, to draw us near, to bring to you our petitions on our own behalf, that we might give you glory through those things. Father, thank you for this morning, our worship. We do pray that you would continue to be with us as we now draw near to you in communion, your Lord's Supper. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.